Chapter 16 Seven and Nine Years Among the Comanches and Apaches An Autobiography by Edwin Eastman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Some Curious Customs the winter had been unusually severe. In several instances snow had fallen, a thing of rare occurrence in these latitudes. Not having prepared for such weather, by laying in an unusual supply of provisions, we were reduced to the verge of starvation, having recourse in our dire extremity to roots and berries, which we dug from the ground. During one week, I lived solely on the juice expressed from the cactus leaves, which I procured by stripping the plant of its thorny excrescences and paring the leaves with my knife. The juice yielded was thick and gummy, and of a sweetish taste. This diet could not sustain life for any length of time. Fortunately, I had the good luck to discover some mesquite berries that had been secreted by one of the tribe. This discovery proved my salvation, as without this timely addition of food, I should certainly have perished. During this season of hardship, many died of starvation. When a death occurred, the family of the deceased would yield themselves up to the most heart-rending grief. Their lamentations would succeed in attracting a crowd of sympathizing mourners who would join the family, and by indulging in yells, groans, and screeches, convert the whole scene into the most hideous travesty, which did violence to all those feelings of awe and solemnity that are experienced by viewing the last sad rites of Christian burial. When an Indian dies, his body is painted, oiled, and dressed in its best attire. A fresh buffalo skin, if it is to be had, and failing this, a blanket is wound tightly around the body and bound with thongs, then other blankets are soaked in water until they become very soft and elastic, when they also are wound around the body with great care and exactness, so as to exclude the air. This done, the dead warrior's arms are placed by his side, and a liberal supply of food, when the article is plenty, placed on the scaffold. These scaffolds are constructed by placing three upright posts in the ground in the shape of a parallelogram and connecting them by lateral bars. Over these bars are placed a number of willow rods on which the body rests in such a position that the feet will be towards the rising sun. The scaffolds are placed high enough to be out of the reach of dogs and wolves, yet not so high as to be inaccessible to the family some portion of whom visit it daily, bringing food and water, which they place near the head of the corpse. 
the spirit is supposed to be in need of this sustenance on his journey to the happy hunting grounds. Once there, his spear, bow, and arrows will enable him to kill game in plenty. When the scaffolds decay and fall, the relatives collect the bones and bury them. The skull, which by this time has become perfectly bleached and purified, is taken and placed among a number of others which form a circle, the faces turned inward and facing a large shaft, around which is heaped a quantity of buffalo skulls. In this position, they are preserved for years, the objects of religious veneration. The scaffolds of the chiefs are distinguished from the others by pieces of red or blue cloth which are thrown over the bodies. A party had been dispatched in search of food and were expected back hourly. How anxiously we awaited their arrival none may know, who have not suffered the pangs of hunger. At last they made their appearance bringing with them a quantity of berries called by the Indians Oth-to-towa. This berry was pleasanter to taste than the mesquite. The juice, when extracted and mixed with water, tasted very much like the orange. In one of my strolls I had observed some blackbirds, and in the hope of finding their nests, I was induced to wander to a greater distance from the village than I had been at any previous time. My search was rewarded by a quantity of eggs, and filling my Indian shirt with as many as I could carry, I retraced my steps. In struggling through the tangled underbrush, I lost my way, and after wandering about for some time in the hope of finding the path, I came to a small spring that was bubbling up from a crevice in the rock. The night had closed in rapidly, and, finding it was too dark to prosecute my journey further, I concluded to remain here for the remainder of the night. Gathering a few dried leaves, I soon had a fire lighted, and then securing enough brush to last me until dawn, I set about preparing my supper, which was merely roasted eggs. This frugal meal was soon dispatched, and heaping more wood on the fire, I selected a dry spot, and stretching my tired limbs, was soon in a sound slumber. How long I slept I know not, but I was awakened by peals of thunder and flashes of the most vivid lightning. These sounds were unusual in this country, as rain rarely fell in these latitudes. Should a storm of any magnitude pour its waters through the gorge in which I then was, I felt my position would be perilous in the extreme. I gathered up my supplies, that were collected at such an expenditure of labor, and scrambled over rocks and threw sand towards the side of the mountain. I had not gone far when the rain commenced, first in large drops, and then in a steady patter. Before many minutes, the storm burst upon the mountain in all its fury. The rain fell in sheets, 
and literally deluged surrounding objects. My resting place was becoming unattainable, and my life was momentarily imperiled by huge masses of falling rock, which had been loosened from its bed and came tearing down the mountainside, carrying all before it. Shielding myself behind trees and boulders, I climbed upwards in the hope of finding a more permanent shelter than that afforded by the stumps of trees. The rain continued to pour down with increasing fury, and anon the vivid flash quickly followed by the startling roar of the thunder and the noise of the seething flood, which by this time was bounding through the cannon, conspired to make the scene more terrible. Almost despairing and thoroughly drenched, I was about yielding myself up to the fury of the tempest when my eye fell upon what appeared to be a crevice in the rock. Hastily making towards it, I entered. The deeper I penetrated, the larger it became, and I found myself at last snugly ensconced within the recesses of a vast cave. Congratulating myself on this good fortune, I was about preparing to resume my rudely interrupted slumber when I was startled by the sight of two glaring eyes that were peering at me from the depth of the cave. Here was a dilemma. I had certainly intruded on some wild animal and penetrated its lair. My situation became unpleasant in the extreme. Turn in whichever direction I might, those fiery eyes followed me, and at last I found that I was being subjected to the influence of a horrible fascination. My unpleasant experience with old F recurred to me with more force than pleasure, and the thought that I might have to deal with a grizzly, made doubly ferocious by being bearded in his den, caused the cold perspiration to stand out in beads upon my forehead. Suddenly, I was startled by a roar that echoed through the cave. Those piercing eyes approached nearer. Mad with fright, I rushed to the mouth of the cave and began a headlong descent down the steep banks of the cliff. In my wild scramble, I dislodged stones and brush, which came tumbling precipitately after me, and I also heard another noise which struck terror to my heart. It was the footstroke of the infuriated animal that was pursuing me. Not knowing whither I was going, but actuated by the sole desire to escape from this new danger, I very shortly found myself nearing the swollen river that was bounding through the cannon. There was no alternative, and bracing myself for a final effort, I plunged into the swollen stream and breasted the waves, hoping to reach a rock that raised its head above the water about an hundred yards down the stream. Struggle as I might, I felt the rapid current sweeping me on with the rapidity of an avalanche. 
should I reach it, or be borne down the torrent, and be dashed to pieces against some hidden boulder? Nerving myself for one grand effort, I breasted the current, and to my joy found I was nearing the rock. Striking out with the strength of despair, I reached the refuge. The waves dash me against its sides. I clutch at the jagged ends that project out of the water, and by their aid clamber out of the reach of immediate danger. Finding myself safe, I look about me. The first object that attracts my attention is the lithe form of my pursuer, who was running up and down the bank, lashing its tail in fury, and occasionally breaking forth in the most savage roars. In its yellow coat and cat-like movements I recognize the dreaded cougar, the tiger of the western mountains. An animal that, when once aroused, will not hesitate to attack man or beast. He seemed to be deliberating whether to follow me into the stream. It was plain he disliked entering the water, and after pacing to and fro for some little time, turned abruptly and left the bank. Thinking I had achieved a victory, and finding that now I was safe, my courage was assuming a very bold front. I picked up a stone and threw it in the direction of the beast. Foolish action! It hit the cougar, and turning, he now rushed to the bank, and bellowing with rage, plunged into the river. My position now became critical in the extreme. Once the rock was gained, I would certainly be mangled by the fierce creature. I could not take flight by water, as he could easily overtake me. My terror was extreme, and I lost the power of will. Fright had made me imbecile, and I rushed about the crest of the rock like a crazy man. All this time the enraged brute drew nearer. His paws touched the base of the rock. He is in the act of drawing his dripping limbs out of the water. Mouth open, tongue extended, and eyes inflamed with rage, the cougar prepares for the deadly spring. But look! The surface of the rock moves, gives way, and slides with a gentle motion towards the river. He makes a desperate effort to free himself from this natural trap but in vain. The rock moves faster every moment, and with one grand rush this landslide is engulfed in the turbid waters. Instantly, the body is thrown back into the seething flood, and my last view of him is as he turns a bend and disappears forever. After waiting several hours for the waters to subside, I am enabled to wade to the opposite shore, and discovering my own trail by accident, wend my way back to the village. My adventure is related to Wakomekla, and soon spreads throughout the village. From this time forth, I am regarded in the light of a hero, 
but on what grounds I was never able to satisfactorily determine, as I could scarcely consider running away from a danger heroic. End of chapter 16